is designed not so much by me, but I think by the spirit of grace for the purpose of what 1 Corinthians 15:58 says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The key there is in the Lord. Our labor is never in vain, never to no purpose in the Lord as it's accomplished in him. And that work is much more wide in its application than we think because it's our whole life and livingness in Christ. And it's what we are sent to. We are cooperating with God's invisible mission of the word right now, always. We manifest Christ in our posture, in our carriage of our lives, in our livingness, in our love, in our forgiveness, in our compassion for others. And by having the love of God poured out in our hearts. This is also designed, and whether you know it or not, we are right in Hebrews 8.1, even though we're going today to 9.11, <laughs> for another 9.11, where the main point is that we have such a great archpriest who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the highest heights of heaven, but he didn't ascend before he first descended to the lower parts of the earth, says Ephesians 4.8. He descended into the lower parts of the earth and ascended to the highest heights of heaven for the express purpose that he would fill up everything with himself so that all things in the heavens and earth would be comprised of him, reconciled in him. And that's the great point that the scripture is making. It says after he ascended on high that he gave gifts, he distributed gifts among mankind, among human beings. First he gave apostles, then he gave prophets, then he gave evangelists and pastors and teachers or pastors who teach. For the purpose of the edification of the church, the upbuilding of the new covenant community, which is the penultimate end of redemption right now, not the ultimate end, for the edifying of the church and for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. This work is what Paul referred to, your labor in the Lord, which is not in vain. Every message is intended to promote in you a patient continuity in Christ and immovability because we are living right now in a time which I call between two great alterations. In the crucified Christ, we have the great alteration of the human situation. And this alters my whole view and our whole view of humanity. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has made us ambassadors with the ministry of this word and this declaration. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he has made him to be for us wisdom. And according to the wisdom of Solomon, not a canonical but a deuterocanonical book, Wisdom saves us, and wisdom saves us because God has made him, Christ Jesus, to be wisdom for us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. 
apolutrosis, which is our subject and has been since we've returned to be face to face. And so we live between this great alteration of the human situation and the great alteration of the human condition, which is also a universal change of condition, which is yet to occur when Christ appears a second time, our great archpriest, without sin, without having to deal with sin again, to bring salvation. And he brings it universally. Hebrews 9.28. We may be hitting that. On 9-11-2001, bad things came to our country. But these bad things occasioned many acts of heroism and selfless love and manifestations of Christ's love, really, in people, whether they were even conscious of it or not. But bad things came to our country. And since then, it seems that other bad things have come to our country. But today, in Hebrews, we're dealing with another 9-11 and the coming of good things to all mankind. I'm speaking of the heart and center of Hebrews. Structurally, it is literally the heart and center. It's Hebrews 9-11. And the good things that it speaks of are both the mediation and the end that redemption denotes. These good things, and we're going to be fanning this out in the future, these good things, as they're called, have to do with the supreme good, that which the mysterious law of the cross brings about and will bring about and has brought about. These good things have to do with the whole Christ, W-H-O-L-E, the whole Christ, the complete Christ. Christ is complete when all of humanity is complete in him. And that's why the whole Christ now in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, is Christ and his corporate new covenant community in union with him. The new humanity, all in the new Adam. The second man, the second representative man, the new Adam. The whole Christ is the supreme good, and these are good things mediated by Jesus Christ, our great archpriest. They are the things that, according to the Holy Spirit's revelation, they've been freely given to us by God. The Spirit of God reveals these to us. They are good things mediated by Jesus Christ, our great archpriest, and they include the end of redemption, which is going to be the universal change of our condition, found primarily in Philippians 3:19 through 21. Our citizenship is presently in heaven. Our polychuma, our true and primary citizenship, is in heaven. And it's from there we expect a savior, a deliverer, who shall come and change these 
bodies of our present humiliation and make them conformable to his own body of glory. That's what I call the alteration of our condition. It's a permanent alteration of our somatic status, which I call the PASS, P-A-S-S, permanent alteration of our somatic or bodily status. Along with that goes the entire redemption of the universe. And if you want a little idea of the universe, I recommend you check out some of the new photographs from the James Webb Telescope, which reach farther into the universe that God has created than we've ever seen before. And the designs are absolutely marvelous. They're making such a big deal out of AI art. Well, this is the ultimate art of the ultimate artist, our Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that we should be able to see and discern by faith, and faith is primarily the discernment of the totality of God's love. One thing that we should be able to detect as we view the creation in its magnitude and even in its microscopic beauty is the astonishing love of our Creator. What he has created, he redeems. And there's nothing that ever came from him into existence by him that he does not redeem. And as Brian said in his prayer, nothing is lost. Nothing is lost. No one is lost. The just and mysterious law of the cross is that God will indeed not only remove all the evils of the human race and all the sin of the world, but transform all these evils into the supreme good, into the whole Christ, into the end denoted by redemption. This is the hope we have. For me, it's my stabilizing hope. It's what makes me steadfast and immovable because I do not have that as a personal character trait. These aren't character traits of a man or a woman. This steadfastness, this immovability are the products of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the eternal God. So these good things are mediated by Jesus Christ, our great archpriest. They are good things that have already come. Altering the universal situation only faith sees that. This is the kingdom of God that does not come by observation. It doesn't come by seeing it. The kingdom of God is within you. It's perceived by faith. And faith is a perceptiveness granted to those that are born from above by God. Above all, faith perceives the totality of God's love. And so these good things have already come. They altered the universal situation, and they are good things also that are coming to alter the universal condition. If the universe has such spectacular beauty, and so does the earth, 
and all of its beauty. If the universe has such spectacular beauty while still affected by sin, what will be its beauty when sin is removed and entropy reversed in the universe and the bodies of humanity altered to resemble the resurrected transfigured body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've said before I'm reading nine or ten commentaries along the way, but I like to distance myself from them and do more of a creative view of Hebrews. And that means that we don't just go verse by verse, but right now I'm going from the heart, into the heart, and then back to Hebrews 8.1. Harold Atridge is one of the commentators that I study. Now, when I study, when I say commentators, William Lane is one of my favorite, but do you know how many sources he studied? About 10,000, maybe 12,000 sources he's consulted over the course of 12 years writing the commentary. So these 12,000 books and then 10,000 from this one and 15,000 from this one and sources from all the way from the patristic era to the early centuries of the church age all the way up to the present era all filter through most of these guys I've picked to be the commentators I study. One of them is Harold W. Atridge. I, I don't know if he's still with us. I think he may be. He remarks that Van Hoy, who is a French author in his book on the structure of Hebrews, and I've read one of Van Hoy's books and he's good, but Van Hoy says that this is the precise center of the text. Now, I wouldn't have known that because I'm not going to count every Greek word in Hebrews and then say which one's in the middle. I'm not even really going to count the verses and count which ones because it's not the verse that's in the middle. It's the precise center of the Greek text right here. It's 9-11. It's another 9-11 than the one commemorated today. But then Atridge also warns that the significance of this fact can be easily overrated. And commentators are always doing this. So they discover something wonderful and then they try to pare it down a little bit and bring it into their own opinion. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's overrated. He said, this is the center. And immediately I start having conversations. And I won't tell you what my conversation consists of because it's not pulpit commentary, usually. But I have these conversations. So let's just say that I would gently counter what he said about we can overrate this by saying, yes, it's true. But we cannot overrate the content of this verse and its thematic centrality to Hebrews. It's in the dead center for a reason. The Holy Spirit gives a divine structure to every biblical book, whether the author is, the human author is aware of it or not. Oftentimes they are aware. They're much more literary in many cases than we are. We think we're smarter now because we have technology or we have advances in what we call science and we think that we're smart. We're not. I'm amazed at the intellect and the capacity of people, the ancients, the patristics, and some of the authors I'm reading now. Sergius Bulgakov is one of the few guys I know, and he's a Russian writer, who can actually straighten out some of the patristics that I've admired so much. And so 
I always like to read a little bit ahead of where I am or way ahead of where I am because it humbles me. Yesterday I spent most of the day reading a chapter in The Lamb of God by Sergius Bulgakov. And it's about a 120-page chapter called The God-Man, Jesus Christ, the God-Man. And I was, I was so floored that I said, I haven't begun to touch this kind of insight. Not yet. But then I always pray to the Lord, bring me there. Bring me there. And then I realize <laughs> you got to go through the eye of a needle to get there because there's a lot that goes between an insight that you want and getting there. In fact, William Lane, and this is why I like these commentators, he said in his commentary of about 12,000 sources, I mean, if you read his bibliography, it would take you about a week. It's, it's, it's about this thick, of just the books. But William Lane, in his commentary of 12,000 sources, I call it, says Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, and be aware of this, 9, 11 through 14 may be considered the core of the writer's argument, at once contrasting the priestly action of Christ with the old cultus and continues the subsequent discussion. Now I take that seriously, that 9-11 to 14 is the core and heart of the argument that he's presenting. 9-11 begins by saying Christ has come. He's arrived through the greater and more complete, and that's a key word in Hebrews, complete, teleoteros, which is the root word for tetelestai, the name of our assembly, our phalanx. Christ has come through the greater and more complete tent. Now, for those of you that, and there are some of you and some people that live far from here who are very impatient with me because they want to go to Hebrews 8.1. They said, that's where we are. Well, this takes you back to Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, which is about the tent. We have a minister in the heavenly tent. So the tent pops up, get it? Pops up again here. Now, this is Jesus' arrival in heaven. If you, if you think about it, most, a lot of commentators are going to say, he has come. That means he's come to the earth. Yes, he has. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking from the heavenly perspective. Christ has come through the heavenly tent. This is the homecoming of the Son of Man into heaven, his entry into heaven. I've always been fascinated, and I mean that for decades, about Daniel 7, 13 to 14. There are things that have grabbed my attention. Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28 is one, and I've mentioned that before. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 is another one that not only grabs me, but it grabs all the New Testament authors because it talks about the cloud man. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds to the ancient of days. This is not a picture of Christ, the son of man, coming to the earth. This is a picture of Christ, the son of man, returning from the earth, having obtained eternal redemption on the cross. And returning to heaven, the Ancient of Days, is the Father, the Majesty, next to whom he sits. And we'll look at that in a, again in a moment. So this is Christ's arrival in heaven. 
having found eternal redemption. The word found is interesting there because we translate it, he's obtained eternal redemption or he has found. But the word found is related to the same word that Archimedes said when he said, Eureka! He discovered the principle of buoyancy and while he was in a hot tub, and he said, Eureka, I've found it, I've discovered it. And I think we need to keep that word alive in Hebrews 9:12 because in one sense, Jesus' mission was to go and explore and find and bring back the most precious pearl of great price, the most precious treasure, which he did in finding our eternal redemption and that, I think we have to leave that alone, but we'll be getting to that down the road with Hebrews 9.12 too. But he went into a far country where he found eternal redemption for the whole of humanity and for the sin-infected cosmos, the universe. So this is Hebrews 9.11, this another 9.11, is about the homecoming of the Son of Man. The one who ascended to heaven after descending first. No man has ever ascended into heaven, Jesus said, except for the Son of Man. Didn't he say that? In, Hebrew, in John 3.13, 14. And he was lifted up like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Between his descension and his ascension, he was lifted up like the serpent on the pole. Christ and him crucified. And so, this is the homecoming of the Son of Man. He said, you're offended because I said these things to you, to the Pharisees, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They didn't get the metaphorical aspect. They still don't. He said, then what are you going to think when the Son of Man ascends back to where he came from? In John 6.62. He drew everything to himself on the cross. That doesn't mean he's just going to draw or drag all humanity to himself. He is. Draw all the universe to himself, and he is. But it means that on the cross he drew all the evil of the human race to himself and absorbed it in himself. He drew all the sins of the world into himself and made them not to be any longer. Obliterated, expiated them. It's by this law of the cross that we operate in the Holy Spirit and we become part of the redemption of history and we become partakers of God's solution to the problem of evil in the world today. He absorbed all the evils of the human race and put an end to sin once and for all. I find this much more fascinating and much more exhilarating to think about than the level of evil that we have in our time. More shocking to me is the absorption of all that evil by the Son of Man. He descended to the lower parts of the earth first. Everybody wants to ascend 
Nobody wants to descend first. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will raise you up in due time. There was one creature genius who started the other way around, wanted to ascend first. <laughs> Forget his name. It's not important. He ascended in order to fill up everything with himself so that God, who is pleased to dwell in his fullness in Jesus, will be all in all. So Hebrews 9.11 announces the arrival of our great archpriest in heaven upon the occasion of his homecoming. That's what's celebrated in heaven. That's the 9.11. That's celebrated in heaven. Christ has arrived. And when he arrived in future world. In the heavenlies. All the angels of God worshipped him. Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. And they still do. Now Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Which comes from Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. Of the Septuagint 39, 6 through 8. That announces his arrival in this world. Look, I've arrived, he says, to this world. If an infant could talk, that's what he'd say from the manger. This little baby, this little helpless infant, we could say about him, behold, the man. There's the man, the representative man. He's holding the universe together. He's guiding all things by his providence. And he's a baby. When he comes into the world, he says, look, I've arrived. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to what? To do your will, O God. There is an obedience that was in pre-eternal times of the Son. There was a Golgotha in God. In the triune God in pre-eternity before there was a Golgotha in time and history. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the earth. And from the foundation of the world. So in Hebrews 10.5-7 he announces his arrival in this world. According to Hebrews 9.26 he appeared. And I love 9.26 to me is the heart of Hebrews as far as its meaning and its essence. He appeared once at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by his self-offering in astonishing, self-sacrificing love for his creation. According to Hebrews 9.28, he appears a second time. He will appear a second time to those of us on earth. Having already expiated sin and having gained the victory over death in resurrection, and this is the second appearance on earth of our great archpriest whose appearance advertises to all of humanity and all of creation that his decisive atoning sacrifice was the final decisive universally atoning act accepted by God who showed his approval of him and of the blood of the everlasting covenant by leading him up from the realm of the dead and seating him at his own right hand. The great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord 
Jesus. From this 9-11 on, we enter into a new sphere, as this assembly is. I'm saying, come, let's go to this place, a place of appropriate worship, a place where worship will be accepted. Now, the second appearance of the great archpriest, and I always want to mention this, the first appearance, the in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the archpriest, the, great, the high priest, would appear before the people. He was called the great archpriest, in fact, back then. Aaron, or whoever it is, one of his sons, was come before the people before going into the tent with the blood of the slain animals. And if he did what Aaron's sons did in Leviticus, they died before the Lord and they never came out again because they offered strange fire, not appointed by God, not directed by God, not led by God, not ordered by him. So Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord. They never came out. There was no second appearance of those priests. But when the priest appeared a second time, it's because the Lord spared his life and gave him life and let him come out of the tent and appear before the people a second time and say, the Lord accepts this offering. He accepts the blood and you guys are clear for another year till the next year of a day of atonement, Yom Kippur. So this is now Jesus came once and for all for all of humanity and went through the tent and he will appear a second time. And that's the second coming, we call it, when what will be apparent then is that his offering for all the sins of all the world in propitiation for the sins of the whole world was finally accepted. Everybody, that's why every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And that seeing is salvation, according to John 640. That seeing of Jesus is salvation to see him. Even those that pierced him which really, if you think it through, is all of humankind, except for him. So from this 9-11 on, as Harold Atridge again puts it, and I'm giving credit where it's due, where I find these things, Hebrews, he says, will finally be concerned not so much with a realistically conceived heavenly journey made by Christ as with the significance of entry into the realm where God is truly worshipped. Is God truly worshipped today across this world, across this nation with all of its churches? And if you ride through New Kensington, you see churches. If you ride through any community, you see churches. Some of them are dead. Some of them are taverns now. It's hip to have a church, an ex-church be a bar now. But it tells you something. Have we entered into a realm where God is truly worshipped? God is seeking worshipers, they that worship him in spirit and in truth, in reality, in authenticity. 
Further in 9-11, Attridge comments and says, the contrast with the old cultic order begins emphatically, not with the institution of the new, but with the person, Christ, who makes the new what it is. Indeed, it is the person, Christ, who makes salvation what it is. God has made him to be wisdom, sanctification, righteousness, or justification, redemption, our subject. And then he says, so that if anyone's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians one thirty one. Indeed, I think, and I know, it's the person, Christ, who makes salvation what it is, makes universal salvation what it is. Our whole thinking on salvation from the beginning is centered not in the doctrine of a universal salvation, but in the person, Christ Jesus, who has universally saving significance. And that's a difference. And here I'm compelled once in a while because I realize sometimes I'm coming out of nowhere and not many, not everyone's heard messages since 2008 where lenses and 2010 with John and 2012 with Revelation and on where we were on a road of discovery. So I'm compelled once in a while to say, to overly simplify where I've been with this. And I was shocked and angered the first time I heard the word universal salvation. Very much, passionately shocked. In fact, I said, and I've been quoted since then as saying, if your pastor teaches that, get the hell out of his church. (laughs) That's my first reaction. And there is a first reaction because there is that first man, Adam, isn't there? Before the second man. But I've been exposed to the theological idea of Jesus Christ's obvious significance in the Bible. It was glaring throughout the Bible, obviously. In fact, I was reading about his universal significance. In John, John 1.3, there's nothing that ever came into existence from non-existence unless it came into existence through him, the word, the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Does he have universal significance? I'd say if anything comes out of non-existence into existence through him, yeah. That's called universal significance of Jesus Christ. And then I also read that which one theologian called Jesus' saving significance. Now, I like to say, look how brilliant I am. Universal significance over here. Saving significance over here. Universal saving significance. One plus one equals two. And again, I'm, I hope you know that I'm joking. I'm not a brilliant person. I'm a syrup-sucking stump jumper from... You thought I was going to say Vermont, from New York. born in New York, moved to Vermont, started syrup sipping and stump jumping there. 
an avid deer hunter, until one time a little doe came up to me when I was hunting, sitting on a log, sitting right in front of a log, and a little doe came up to me and looked at me and tapped the log I was sitting on, like this. And I was like, I can't kill you. Then I heard a crash behind me, and her boyfriend fled away with a big rack. <laughs> they do that for their, for their husbands. They, they uh, do a lot for their husbands. Look at me, look at me. Boom, he's gone. Now, His significance is surely universal, as the scripture declares. His significance in terms of all created reality is openly declared. And few Christians, including the ones who say that I have changed and that I am a heretic and that I am this and I'm that and I'm that. I like all those names. They're nice. They would agree, though, that Jesus has universal significance. In fact, that's a revelation. But at this point, I, I simply didn't, I didn't ask, the, I amended the question because I couldn't answer the first one. The first question, will all human beings be saved? That wasn't the question. When I asked that question, I, I hit a wall. Or is there a universal salvation? I hit another wall. The question then arose in me that says, don't ask whether there is a universal salvation. Ask rather whether Jesus Christ has a universally saving significance. The answer came through much inquiry and investigation, through reflection and further study. It is a decidedly affirmative answer. Yes, Jesus has universal saving significance. He in union with the Father and the Spirit, is a universal redeemer even as he is the universal creator. God who brought everything that once had no existence into existence through Jesus Christ also made everything alive that was dead through sin. That's Romans 4.17. So, let's accelerate a little bit. Again, if we fan out 9.11... Hebrews 9.11, just a little on each side. We have on the left of it, if you look at it on our English text, we have the word deothorsis, and we'll be hitting this in the future. Deorthosis on the left in verse 10. The time of correction, it's called. But since the noun deorthosis is only used once in all the Greek Bible, it's important to consider its special meaning in this context again. So I go to one of my buddies named A.T. Robertson. He relates it to Christianity and the great reformation of current Judaism or Phariseeism and the spiritual Judaism foreshadowed by the Abrahamic promise. I disagree. I think that because Hebrews deals again with such a great salvation. Note that phrase in Hebrews 2.3. Such a great salvation. The whole church is neglecting such a great salvation. 
if they don't see the salvation that is universal in Jesus Christ, they're neglecting such a great salvation. And when Christians have the right to and the responsibility not to neglect that salvation, but instead neglect it, they actually become a force for the decline of history rather than its redemption. And then they look out and see the immorality of the masses of people and the way things are going and the way and this politician and that politician not recognizing in humility that perhaps it's because the so-called new covenant community has neglected such a great salvation or fights it when they hear it. In a more immediate context, he calls it eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. Eternal redemption. And the self-offering of the Lamb of God in Hebrews 9.14. Who in John 1.29 took away the sin of the world. How did he do that? By becoming sin. So that the word deorthosis may have the same sense of a universal setting right of what is wrong as anakephaliosis does in Ephesians 1.10 and apokatastasis does in Acts 3.21. Deorthosis belongs right in the same group and semantic group of words. The setting right of a universe and of a whole humanity that has gone wrong through the disobedience of the first representative man, the first Adam. The old Adam. The setting right came through the second representative man, the last Adam, the divine man, Christ Jesus. The time of reformation or the setting right that came about with Jesus Christ coming into the world wasn't a change from Judaism to Christianity. Through his doing of the Father's will and the homecoming to the Father, it is a universal setting right that puts deorthosis on the same category with apocatastasis and anakephaliosis and what Jesus called the new genesis and palingenesia in Matthew 19.28, predicting a new genesis that begins with him. Thayer, Joseph Thayer, is very helpful. He says it refers to the times of the Messiah, which also gives it a universal and everlasting significance. Lunida, one of the best of all the lexicons. The generally preferred interpretation, he says, is the reformation of all things. So that's what's on the left of 9-11, deorthosis. Now here's where in the notes, you'll probably see what I do once in a while is put in the notes, I put some italic font in and a little paragraph, and that's like a side trip in my brain. It's like an excursus, they call it, an excursion, a discourse. And this is what I want you to see with the vision of your heart. We see Jesus because the Son of Man, the Son of Man vision in Daniel, in which he sees one like a Son of Man, a truly human being an authentically 
human being. Coming on the clouds and approaching the Ancient of Days, we have to interpret that as the homecoming of the Son of Man to the Father. Jesus returned to the Father, where he is subsequently enthroned next to the majesty or God in heaven. You know where that is? Hebrews 8.1. I'm saying everything that I've said in these past weeks to enrich our exegesis of Hebrews 8.1, not escape it. And so what about Revelation 1.7? Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye will see him even those that pierced it. And all the nations of the what? The earth shall mourn because of him. And that means, as 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 says, they will be sorrowful unto salvation. So what John does in Revelation is particularly brilliant because he takes this picture of the Son of Man who's seen going to the Father, he pictures him now in conflation with Zechariah 12.10, every eye seeing the one whom they have pierced, Yahweh, God, whom they have pierced. Don't tell me Yahweh in the Old Testament isn't Yeshua of the New. He very much is. And if you have not said that or disagree with that, you are in error and I don't care who you are or what you sing. And if you want to debate about it or not, Yahweh, the whole point of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge that the Lord, Kurios, Yahweh of the Old Testament is Yeshua, Jesus of the New Testament. You want to argue against that? I wouldn't. And so... John takes that revelation from Daniel 7.13, conflates it, blends it with Zechariah 12.10, and predicts the universal seeing of the pierced Son of Man, which will occur in the second appearance of our great archpriest when he brings salvation. Every eye will see him, the eyes of the dead, the eyes of the living, the living and the dead. They will see him, they will be raised from the dead, and they will see him, and seeing him, they will be saved even those that pierced him we say yeah they pierced him no look carefully you pierced him I pierced him where did you receive those wounds again Brian's message recently I received them in the house of my friends On the left we have Diothorus. On the right, right in Hebrews 9.12, and I'm ready to close, hang in there. Be steadfast, be immovable. You think I'm going long? The Steeler game will be at least three hours. You watch a tennis match, five hours. Five hours. That's a commitment of time. Baseball games used to be the longest games of all. Now they're short compared to tennis matches. You can be steadfast and immovable watching a five-hour tennis match. Be steadfast and immovable. Listening just a little bit longer. I won't go that long.
What if that happens to us sometime? Keep going. The Spirit says, keep going. You need five hours. How many people are left at the end? None. How many angels? Billions. And Emery will be here. He may be asleep, but he'll be here. <laughs> no, he would never do that. He's a Marine. And I mean that with the greatest of complimentary love. So, on the right we have what? Eternal redemption. On the left we have universal correction. Let's look at the verse then. This is my translation of 9.11 to 14. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming through the greater and more complete tent. Not made by human hands. That is not of this creation. We're talking here about the new creation of all things. Right at the heart of Hebrews 9.11. He entered once and for all. Epapax. That's one of the key words of Hebrews. They're convening here. All the key passages or key words are convening. Ephapax, once and for all and for all time and for all people. Through the sanctuary having obtained, Eurisco, found, discovered, is used here in an analogous, analogous way. Like the man who found a pearl of great price and went and sold everything he had to buy it. The price of redemption. Like the man who found a treasure in the field. He discovered eternal redemption. For the blood of he goats and bulls that is under the old Levitical order and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the body and it did ritually. Then how much more will the blood of Christ? There's the blood groove that goes throughout the length of the sword of the word of God. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that's a Lamb of God description, to purify our conscience from sinful things we've done so that we can serve the living God, meaning as priests. The word Lamb of God isn't found here, but unblemished refers to the Lamb of God. You know where you get that from? 1 Peter 1.18, as from a blood of an unblemished lamb. Same word, amomas, a, a non-defective lamb, a perfect lamb, a sacrificial lamb. Similar there, therefore, 1 Peter 1.18 reads, you were redeemed by precious blood as of a lamb without blemish or defect. Without blemishes of, particularly, of particular note in this core verse, and core passage, because the PT uses the same word as the Apostle Peter. It's amomu, M-A-M, long O-M-O-U. You'll see it in the print in the notes. And it describes Christ who offered himself without spot to God by the eternal spirit in an astonishing act of selfless love. And this is notable because Peter seems to be a major influencer on the Hebrews author, as illustrated in the literary similarities which are throughout 1 Peter and Hebrews, and because of the words in Hebrews themselves which says this writer was affected by 
such a great salvation, he says in Hebrews 2.3, which correlates with the salvation that should come to you, which angels want to study in 1 Peter 1.10-12, which the Spirit of Christ spoke about while in the prophets in 1.10-12. And that's the topic of Hebrews. It's the very salvation which, as Hebrews 2.4 says, began to be articulated through the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him. Hebrews 2.3. Few things are more clear in the scriptures than that Peter was among those who heard the Lord. And in Acts 3.21, for example, he spoke of this great salvation by saying that all the prophets, since time immemorial, without exception, univocally, with one voice, God spoke through all the prophets about this apokatastasios, Pantone, the restoration of all things, which will come about in its final fullness and in its end and objective when God sends his son, who is currently being entertained in heaven, it says, worshipped in heaven. When God sends his son, he will bring these times of refreshment with him. And he will bring about the restoration of all things, the resurrection of all humankind. Every eye will see him, every knee will. Buckle before him willingly, every tongue worshipfully acknowledge that Yahweh is indeed this Yeshua, and to see him is indeed to see the Father. Angels want to study this, because ultimately it does affect them too. And their fallen contemporaries. So Peter wrote about this salvation, concerning this salvation, and the grace that has come to you, my readers. It was so great that the prophets in whom the Spirit of Christ prophesied of made careful search and inquiry regarding it, that even angels desire to look into it, the envy of angels. Of course, angels desire to look into it not only because it's an action of God's unimaginable mercy, which blows them away. And is grace toward mankind. But also they see in it a salvific act that affects all of creation, including the angelic community. And Peter made this clear that this salvation was embodied in the messianic sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Hebrews author understood Jesus to be crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death in which he experienced death, the wages of sin for everyone. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. So I must say that these glories that follow the messianic suffering must be those good things. The good things. Which according to another 9-11, Hebrews 9-11, have already come. Both senses pertain here. Some authors say, it's already come. No, others say, it's coming. It's both. Good things that have already come, and the New Covenant community knows this, and the only difference between me, who says be reconciled to God, and the person 
who hasn't heard that message is that I've been reconciled to God and know it, and they've been reconciled to God and don't know it. That's the gospel. Tell people that they're reconciled already. That's the announcement. That's the finished work. That's the done deal. It's a done deal. And if the Holy Spirit awakens faith in them that it is a done deal, they suddenly realize that they're part of the new covenant community, which is the penultimate end, the second to the last end that redemption has brought. So I have to say that the glories that follow the messianic suffering must be those good things which, according to Hebrews 9.11, have already come to the initial recipients of Hebrews and to us on the level of our time. In closing, then, we have in this subsection, 9.11 to 14, the very core of the homily and the convening of many key concepts of this epistle, including the visible mission of the Son of God, his visible mission, the blood groove, the Lamb of God. Now, the Lamb of God is also the center and heart of Romans. We don't see the word lamb in Romans 8, 31 to 32. God is for us, did not spare his son, but freely handed him over in fulfillment of what? Genesis 22, 1 through 8, where Abraham said to Isaac, whom God did spare, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself. So right in the middle of Genesis 20 and 22, there's a lamb sacrificed. Right in the middle of Romans, in the very heart and center of Romans 8.32, God did not spare his only son, but freely gave him over on behalf of us all. And how shall he not, therefore, with him having been given, freely give us all things, all those good things in Romans 8.28 and 8.32. And so at the heart... Of Romans. Revelation opens with, I saw as a, as it were, a lamb that had been slaughtered, yet he's standing in the midst of the elders before the throne of the Father. A lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world in Romans, Revelation 13.8 at the heart and 28 times in Revelation, the lamb of God the fourth gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we keep beholding the Lamb of God until we see him on the cross and his legs aren't broken because you don't break the legs of the Lamb that sacrificed for redemption in Exodus 12.46. At the heart of Exodus, there's a Lamb. At the heart of Genesis, there's a Lamb, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb. At the heart of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, as a Lamb led to the slaughter. And through his experience of suffering, he justifies the many. My suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, brings the good thing of justification to all humankind. And the rectification of all that's gone wrong in the universe. I have seen now. And this is what blows me away more than anything else. A lamb at the heart 
of Hebrews. I've seen the lamb at the heart of Revelation. I've seen the lamb at the heart of John, at the heart of the writings of Paul. Christ, our sacrificial lamb, has been offered. Let us therefore partake of the feast now. The Christian life, a feast. I have seen the lamb at the center of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, the Gospels, the epistles, Hebrews, that extraordinary epistle written by this guy who came out of nowhere. And he was a guy, I hate to tell you ladies, he wasn't a lady. We know from a masculine pronoun in Hebrews 11, 31 and 32, sorry. Who was he? He didn't want to be known, so we don't know. We know that he was a genius of some kind. He, he had a study, he understood rhetoric, he understood structure. He consciously structured Hebrews with Hebrews 9-11 in the center, and we know that. So since we're approaching the central section of Hebrews, why not hit at the very heart and center of that section, which is the literary heart and center of the whole homily, and reflects the heart and center of all biblical Revelation. Why not? So note finally the tent. The reference to the tent. He's come to heaven through a tent not made with hands. So he arrived through a tent. That means he arrived in heaven. The biggest act of history that ever happened happened on earth with the crucified Christ and his resurrection, but it also happened in heaven when he arrived there and went through an invisible tent, a metaphorical tent, and the Father received him, the Son of Man, the homecoming of the Son of Man. And so Hebrews 8.1 says, now the summing up of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. What about your salvation? Pitched by the Lord, not man. What about creation? Pitched by the Lord, not man. What about redemption? Pitched by the Lord, not man. So here in 9-11, he elaborates the greater and more complete tent. Hebrews 8, see what I did there? All the way around. Was that in my mind the whole time I was teaching all these other messages? Yep. Back to Hebrews 8-1. If you put Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, 8, 8, 2 specifically, the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man, it's as if he held on to that thought until he got all the way to 9, 11 and talked about the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. 
That's a long description of this tent, and it refers to what? The new creation of all things. Behold, as Revelation ends, I'm making everything new. Oh, and I have something else to tell you. It's done in 21.6. You see, we're making our way back to Hebrews 8. So, Father, thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.